Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesum. Chris, how are you doing on this lovely Seattle evening? David, it is a lovely Seattle evening. I've had pretty good weather since I've been here with my solo art show at the Center on Contemporary Art in Pioneer Square. That's up until June 10th. Really, really great launch event night. Uh, I'm very pleased with that. Having a good time uh, with my family. And I'm catching up with uh, an old writer friend tomorrow. So it's been uh, it's been really, really good going. And the weather has been unusual. It's been sticky, but I'm, I'm pretty grateful. So overall, the mood is good. How are you? Good. Very sore because Gus has decided that his new favorite thing is to jump. And I use jump with scare quotes because he's not really jumping. He's wanting me to lift him up into the air and toss him. And so I've just been tossing a baby all day and I've been getting some, I've been getting a little bit of my guns back just from all the different strange positions he gets me into that actually do represent or resemble, I should say a lot of very common gym exercises. There's the, there's the tricep pull, uh, push up, right. This kind right, of thing. Right. There's the, the chest fly, you know, right. uh, there's a, a lot of different ones. Well, you know, we've talked about the difference between gym fitness and work fitness, you know, like being able to like work on your house and not kill yourself and being able to, you know, move the next day after a serious laboring day. I think parent fitness, you know, I think you got it. I think you got to, you know, imagine I can imagine these fake baby weight sets, you know, that could be a new fad, a new uh, you could start it, you know, a new entrepreneurial effort. And a lot of guys who go into the gym and put on Metallica or Slipknot or whatever, the dad fitness routine would be a kid in your ear, in your earbuds being saying, uh, jump, jump, daddy, 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 jump, jump, daddy, jump. (laughs) I think we just cracked onto a whole new weird uh, sci-fi series idea of a psychological epidemic that breaks out amongst men, Mm -hmm. you know, 20 to 30, you know, the, the young man sort of face and they, they need artificial babies to sort of weightlift and gym and connect with and bond. They don't have any real, you know, but they get addicted Mm -hmm. and the, and these baby characters start manipulating them like Siri, like, you know, they're artificial intelligences. That's really cool. That's a cool idea. Yeah. Of a post-apocalyptic wasteland where men have cyborg babies. Yeah. To, uh, I don't tell them. I mean, where's there been a thing about men and and babies other than predation, you know, pedophilia? I mean, that's kind of boring. That's sort of we've done the hell the, out of that. The road comes to mind, but the road is maybe the only one. How do you I mean Cormac McCarthy? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What but I guess his I guess his kid is eight or nine, so not a baby, but yeah, yeah. yeah. I see. I guess that's a I to me that's a father son story against a, a real uh-huh. apocalyptic background. But I'm talking about the obsessive uh, 
compulsive fixation on oh yeah yeah for for children and 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 super fatherhood you know yeah no i see it i see it well they don't exist because i'm at the tip of the spear i'm the avant-garde of yeah, you the super are. father uh, you are what, do you have i want to get into our debrief yeah uh, because your art show happened this week and my Las Vegas trip happened this week, but I feel like that's going to be a, a solid 15, 20 minute conversation. So we'll move our our banter about that after the segments. Okay. Do you have a, ba- a band for us today? I do. It's called Delay Action Hall of Mirrors. And it's entirely self-sampling music that just devours itself like the devouring televisions you know we use the expression mm-hmm. devouring mirror uh for an episode a little while back but you've probably seen the the optical illusion of te- of, of televisions apparently sort of seeming to swallow themselves or they become mm-hmm. a hotel hallway mm-hmm. you know? uh and i i just i'm addicted to shooting hotel hallways i've got about 50 million videos and some of them are really cool. And then, and then others are, that's another hallway, you know, maybe, you, you know, it's a little bit, you've got a theme, you know, but um, they, there, there is a, a tape loop process and several interesting uh, musicians have used it, but they're taking like super pop, uh, like eighties through 2000 like the really really mainstream pop sounds and just completely stringing like slinkies where they're just each level is devouring itself further and further and yet as you may imagine there remains a kind of psychologically unnerving sound even as things get peeled back it's like the the truly ambient like air conditioning sound of all of that synthesized music of the 80s and 90s yeah i like that and it reminds me on youtube you can listen to um the one that comes to mind is a song called pyramids by the band radiohead yeah you can listen like to that radiohead. you can listen to that slowed down uh 800% and it becomes this I put it on once a friend of mine runs a runs an art gallery in an, and a print shop in Norman. And he has these uh, weekly meetups where you can show up and bring your art supplies and everybody gets together and drinks coffee and, you know, makes things. And they asked for a suggestion of music. And I suggested that because it it's a, it's about a three minute song that ends up lasting about half the time we would be there. And about 15 minutes into it, this girl says, can we please listen to something else? <laughs> well, you know, I, I just, I am so deeply involved in Arab music, North Indian classical music, the whole uh, drone idea, but doing, I'm trying to do that in from a, a percussion based, mm-hmm. but as I've started to listen more and more to music based on the idea of the studio as musical instrument mm-hmm. uh, whether that be high-end stuff like brian eno or not 
it's a it's a really complex thing of of seeing visualization because you can get all these you know see the sine wave see everything of how the whole process of perception just mm-hmm. strips away and yet for people like you and me we know that that even when we're having fun with that idea let's say and it doesn't seem reductionist to us because we're manipulating things we think well it's collage you know mm-hmm. uh, the the idea that that there is that that's the explanation for the whole thing that somehow by decoding and pulling apart all these signals we've gotten to the heart of the idea of message it's it's not it's not only not satisfying i think it's it's very confrontational it starts off frustrating and then it got it gets if you really think about it 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 it's it's kind of monstrous mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know that's where the monster is you know that's the shape out there in that Jungian mist you know because we don't know where that message comes you know it's the ghost radio signal for sure you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and what is your aphorism for today okay well um and this is a thought this is you can hear this from many, many different points of view. And some of my favorite uh, art heroes would say this, and this is nothing new to you, but I, I wanted to put forward something very clear and really, really simple mm-hmm. uh, because I'm realizing that sometimes my vocabulary, my syntax, my grammatical frames kind of bewilder people. Uh, Anyway, art is a mode of perception, not a category of objects or experiences to be perceived. Yep. I think it's like magic in that way. That's that's the connection. Well, I think that I mean, yeah, it is. I mean, I think I think it explains holism in in a whole bunch of it resonates on from what it what it says. Uh, but I, I'd like to think it's simple enough for people who haven't really framed that idea in a, in a way they can handle, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and there is a, a sort of another, uh, sort of hook on not everything can be held in any sized hand. I think that's almost a good title. It's a little long, but in other words, that's the 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 other sort of very clear argument against the material uh, frame where everything can be explained by essentially what we call physics. And when we when we know <laughs> that that's so fundamentally not true uh, on every level, so that's kind of my paired up aphorism coming out of the art show and the mesh of the travel experiences and talking to a lot of uh, strangers in passing. Awesome. Well, I do have a text from you to read. Um, You've got an imaginative challenge, sir. Oh, right. All right. Let's do that first. And this is, this is about to get, this is like a, a, a big curl in surfing or a really serious roller coaster 
corkscrew because I'm going back to giving you a choice, a crossroads. They're related maybe, but it's a crossroads nonetheless. So you got to choose one or the other. And so we're going to learn something about the whole deal just by your choice. Okay. So you're writing a kind of scenario, short treatment description, giving us, uh, you know, what's the skinny mini about one of these two topics. So you're going to have, and you have to do some real heavy invention with this, but of a kind that you're good at. The first one is to imagine an extraterrestrial mental illness. And I don't need to say that's a double whammy right there, isn't it? That's I mean, awesome. I'm I writing think it down. Yeah. That's a, to use an Australian, that's a ball terror. That really, I, I was very proud yeah. of that. Yeah. I was down when I thought of that and I thought I got to get up and walk around a little bit because that's going to, yeah, that's that's badass. it's, it's, you know, you hear often about, um, on asteroids, the potential for there to be viruses in the ice of the asteroid and yeah. when it hits the virus goes everywhere, but not mine viruses. And what if, what if, cause we have had some, we had Tunguska which uh, I was reading something recently that says that that might've been a, a death ray that Tesla invented, which is just right up my conspiracy theory. Oh, yeah. Out. Yeah. The, the, there's a whole body of folklore about that. Absolutely. Yeah. What, was, how can you avoid that as a strange event? I mean, it's fabulous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But assuming it was a, an asteroid, the timing is right <laughs> for it to be an ever-evolving mind virus that got out there is that what you that's what you mean right not not a mental illness for extraterrestrials but a mental illness. oh no i think i i want you i think you could go either way okay Okay. i think you could go the latter way for sure i mean you've homo sapiens i mean america is is a performance of what homo sapiens mental illness looks like Mm -hmm. so no, no, you, you could do the other and have the double one of having to imagine what the extraterrestrial life form is like, and then what makes the mental illness different. Actually, I'm going to give you the choice between those two and hold over my other option to hit you up next time, because I think this is already a, a good crossroads. Okay. For All right. Yeah, no, I love it. So it's a it's a strong first contender. The second one would have to really step its game up to compete with an extraterrestrial mental illness. I think, yeah, yeah. Although (laughs) it's not going to disappear in the rotation. It's going to go back into our lost explorers jukebox and come up around again at some point. Yeah. Cool. Cool. All right. So you sent me a big text uh, about your time in Seattle and I'm not going to read the whole thing. But I do want to read the last paragraph or the penultimate paragraph right before the postscript, as I'm calling it up here, just to give folks an idea <laughs> of, the, of the direction that this episode is going to go. Oh, no. Bigger view. America has become a much dumber place than when I was 21 on every level you can name. 
you really have to be grateful for any signs of curiosity and general cultural knowledge in even the educated professional class, which you would have taken completely for granted once. The pressures of day-to-day life are a factor. So is the conflict between scenic beauty and those pressures. But I think denial and ideological paralysis is the deciding factor. You can't put the Kool-Aid back in the jug. I think we are performing, or at least attempting to perform, an absolutely essential ministry that is in drastic need right now. I agree with you 100%. Let's minister. Right. Oh, okay. Well, look, I I am very glad you celebrate that because I absolutely refuse to apologize for any righteousness in that tone. Uh, I I really mean a lot by it, and I think that it's something that is said in many ways from many different points of view. Uh, we certainly talk about a dumbing down of of American schools. Uh, we look at at performance uh, figures in terms of literacy and numeracy. We talk about the New York Times, you know, dumbing down their vocabulary a little bit more each year. There are a lot of measures for this. And people talk about the nature of TV shows and reality TV and the Kardashians everywhere you turn. Many, many ways to sort of look at this. But I mean something, I think, a bit different. And I think it has to do with two different tectonic, psychotectonic processes. I think in one way, some very solid structures of belief and value and therefore educational modes, not formal always, sometimes very informal, you know, but they held things together. I think that is kind of dissolved. It's looking instead of like, you know, beautiful folded mountains and topography and stuff, it's looking to me more like the crust on a set the top of a septic tank when you open you can, oh dear, you know, you gotta break the crust. And uh that's that's a real concern. Uh so we've got a kind of a strange uh dissolution, which is also uh atrophied and hardening. I mean that's the be- how, what what how, how what's better a swamp that's desiccated and and filled with bones I mean that's like the worst of everything right and I think that's psychologically kind of what's going on and then I think there's there is some exciting possible worlds of people who are just not part of the cultural conversation they're not part of the mirror verse. They frankly have a little bit too much authenticity to really be part of that world. And I think we're just splitting away. It's another strange development of, of the digital revolution and the internet. I mean, how do you account for the fact that, that for free, you can have access to more educational resources than anybody could possibly imagine. I mean, it's just astounding. And yet, you know, literacy and numeracy tumbles, general ignorance, you know, how do you account for that? You know? So that's my opening deal in response to what you've read of mine. 
Right. What I, I like what you said there, the way that I would rephrase the overabundance of authenticity is that there are some people who are too real to live. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah. Ooh, that, that's great. That's a great album title. I think that's yeah. that's our book. I think that too real to live. Too real to live. Beautiful. Well, I I um I wanted to talk to you, and this will directly circle back into what we're talking about here, because I have uh three moments in very recent history, the past two decades plus three very specific moments that I think have gotten us to where we are. And it's going to be interesting because each particular moment could potentially be its own episode, but we're going to wing it and, and see where it goes. Um, okay. Before, so these are hinge moments, turning points. Yes. Hinge okay. moments. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I also have, I do have a theory about a kind of grand sentence length summation of what I think might be going on. But I wanted to talk ground level about your art show first, and then oh. I'll talk about my Vegas trip. Okay, well, I, I thank you. I think, and I think that's very practical because these have been the big things. Uh, well, I'm very pleased with the art show in the sense of the response generally, which is pretty intuitive and wasn't you know, super detailed, but I think was something I can, I can count on. I could see some connections um, with many, uh, many people. I, I must say, and I, I was, maybe should have said this off mic, but there was one uh, dude who was really, really uh, very smart and was making some comments I really wanted to uh, understand more fully. But he was the only one across the whole evening and quite a number who had not just a, a COVID mask, but a kind of a cone, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of talking. Plague mask? Yeah, well, yeah. Look, something out of, of the, you know, the Comedia dell'Art, you know, that kind of doctor play. Yeah, something not quite that, you know, not quite theatrical enough for me to feel like, oh, I really love your mouth. You know, I was just <laughs> trying to like see his, you know, I was just dealing with this black cone. But um, so I think it was a good response. I don't think there is a forum that allows me to say as much about the work as I would like. So I am going to do a documentary film. And I, I thought on, on sort of really on the whole topic of psychogeography, because I took some great video on the road up. I think I will go down. And uh, at some point I, I, I'm going to ask you to uh, send you some notes on the whole subject. And uh get you to do an interview that I can use as part of the voiceover for it. Cause I think it's going to be really cool. cool. Um, I think that there, there is no uh, lack of clarity. Why my exhibit is the last physical one going into the center on contemporary art. It is uh, right in the heart of pioneer square, which is not only an unusually urban uh, in an Eastern city sense, 
uh, for Seattle or for any West Coast city, really. Um, it's it's just become uh, really dicey with mental health problems, homeless and, and drugs. I would say the homeless thing is not. Uh, well, it's not like the huge tent cities that are going on on the outskirts in many cases, but the drug problem was just absolutely apparent and completely ignored but the police are well passed i think seattle has a real police problem right now and may not get past it so mm-hmm. that was a weird thing to be talking about the notion of psychic navigation and i i can see why you know the gallery just doesn't get enough foot traffic i think it's too edgy an area but i think the very thing that i want the subject of my exhibit is about negotiating space and time into you know psychically within our own privacy of mind, but culturally and socially, and the fact that that discussion on any level is hard to have, uh, for very practical reasons and and parking you know the whole thing is a part of it. It looks like there's an active discouragement to get people happening and, and, you know, bopping and feeling good and ask, you know, checking things out. And I, I, that is sad. You know, I think that, and this, this part of Seattle and Seattle, that's nothing unusual, you know, other cities like that. So that's kind of the, the, um, I'm, I think that if you look at the work photographically or in video terms and listen to the music and you were to sort of peel that out of the gallery environment, as I will eventually have it as a, as a digital phenomenon, I'm very proud of it. I think it's cohesive and yet uh, eclectic. And I think it has a, a, a good delivery on the promise of the theme of psychogeography with many different approaches to it. Uh, I particularly like my uh, MH370 piece and the Time Shaman, which was the highlight, uh, and it's a fabric piece. So I've taken uh, all of my interest in camouflage. And oddly enough, and this really happened at a very sort of, I, I got a kind of a rainbow figure. Have I shown you that piece? Yes, I've seen that one. I, yeah. Okay. And I've, it's, so it's, it's a kind of a, uh, I mean, I was thinking of many tribal uh, shaman costumes or warrior costumes that I've seen around the world. And I wanted to do something that was dimensional, really playing on the notion of camouflage to disguise versus camouflage to announce. Uh, and it's got some crazy fish hooks and stuff in it that are really wonderful. Mm-hmm. And the most wonderful, they, uh, one of the, the women helping me with the installation, uh, they were both terrific and the director was terrific. Uh, but one of the gals was just this cute as a button uh, MFA student, just absolutely exquisite to look at. It's tiny, a very petite uh, young woman. And she and I are down sort of pulling, you know, separating the piece to we're getting ready to mount it on the wall and all of that language is so exciting with someone who looks like her and she got her sweater entangled in one of the you know the fish lures which looked beautiful it just it was perfectly executed and it was uh it was just a hilarious 
moment of of catching you know this beautiful little maiden you know mm -hmm. with the artwork and the whole th scene was lovely you know and finally sort of extricating her what is the what is your quality your qualia experience of your own mind how big is your mind Well, first of all, I would say it's it's undulating and contracting, oscillate <laughs> between, you know, it's changing form. Uh, I think that the scale is enormous in terms of differences. Uh, I mean, and, and acute anxiety, paranoia, claustrophobia is when it collapses to too small a point uh i think it's terrestrial you know i think it's terrestrial but i don't think it's i don't really um i, I cosmic to me steps away from astronomy I, and i use the term cosmic as opposed to astronomical unless i i mean astronomical you know mm -hmm. um and I, I find I can get with that when I'm directly doing backyard astronomy or I have to have my attention called to that. But then what I mean by the cosmic is much more sort of interdimensional and it's not, it's not rocket ship. You wouldn't take a spaceship to visit it. You would need some other device or a wormhole or a magic wardrobe, like a NAR, you know, something another mechanism so it's not on that plot you know it's not on this plane it's more mm -hmm. you? Mm -hmm. that's a great I, thank you <laughs> <laughs> thank you it i just was wondering i wanna... <laughs> i'm so grateful i know someone <laughs> asked that question and i think a lot of there are listeners the kind of people who feel that way too it's like oh my god did you hear what this guy said and the, i mean i under i've been waiting to be asked that question my whole life <laughs> <laughs> i'm glad dude i'm glad i sometimes you know undulating and oscillating are good terms there are times when i feel like uh it's a bunch of ferrets in a tube, you know, uh, uh, with all of the, the smells and, and kind of tactile sensations of a ferret cage. Um, other times, <laughs> other, I mean, there are, there are times where, uh, where it does, where it becomes very physical. And I feel like my mind is a part of the grass that I'm cutting or the child that I'm, I'm looking and the I think the real pain of being alive is experiencing those those things and knowing that you're going back to the ferret cage for a while. Um look, I, I have to interrupt you because something I, I'm having an interdimensional moment. Let's go. You and I have many, many instances of very bizarre synchronicities. But I just don't think this is is this is explainable easily because ferrets, in my experience, are not a common subject of conversation in North America. <laughs> I, I think 
be much more likely to have that word come up in Australia or the United Kingdom. Yeah. Uh, but even then, I really, really think that the the Vegas odds are not that that word would come up and and forcefully. It didn't just sneak its way in there. Um, that just came up, and I'll and I'll tell this. I that is not one of David's uh, secret words that he has yeah. to have to. <laughs> Um, he, that's not, he's not slipping that in just to, but even if he did, even if he did, you wouldn't have known about my side of the thing because only a short while ago for no real obvious reason, except, you know, maybe some sort of cosmic reason. I was talking to a woman whose name I found out was Amy who is uh, an interesting person to look at. She's enormous of bosom, enormous of bottom, and is very into animals and has four dogs, a boa constrictor, and a ferret. And she has a ferret because she grew up in what she called the country and said that her father had ferrets. So this is, this is, unex I think this is very odd. It is one of the great mysteries of the, of the, Don't, of the lost explorers. I, I um, yeah, <clears throat> I think we might actually, we might be out of sync on zoom here. I wonder if there's a way to reset this i'm hearing you fine i did have a little moment where my internet you know it says your internet connection oh, is on okay okay you can hear me now yeah you're fine you've had a couple but nothing substantial okay cool I have to, yeah it's it's worth checking when when you post because i yeah that okay, could be cool. weird but it cool. wasn't my my impression of zoom is how we hear it is how it gets recorded that's that's been what I've noticed. Oh, well, then past. it should be fine. It yeah, should it should be, be fine. fine. Yeah, no, there's there's a lot of that. I think that when when you're vibing and when you do just say the first thing that comes to your mind, like you were talking about ghostscapes, and I was curious, what is the you know Daniel Dennett, uh, enemy of the show, calls it qualia. He wrote a whole book about qualia that I read because I used to be really into it. Uh, but it's essentially the idea of, do you perceive blue the way I perceive blue? We both call the same thing blue because it's on the same electromagnetic spectrum of light, but your, qual your the quality of what you're seeing, is it the same? Uh, and I was curious about uh, what your own particular ghostscape might, might look like, your mindscape. Well, you know, I've spoken of so one of the one of the uh, the main pieces is based on an MRI image of my brain, yep. which I've milk screened is what I call it. And if, if the goal of silk screen is faithful reproduction, my approach is to further damage the original image and to create another sort of thing unto itself. But 
I'm I'm thinking about the mapping idea of the brain, which is the the essence of of contemporary neurology, and it's a very noble goal, and it's really cool where it delivers results, and in many, in many cases it does, in terms of cognitive function. Uh, but there's a lot of things that it doesn't do. Memory is the key one. This is what Rupert Sheldrake says. You know, where is memory in the brain? It's everywhere, nowhere. And uh, then the analogy of the television set comes up, which we have processed back into more of a radio uh, framework of all a wolf mount jack and a huge, you know, border blaster signal over the Mexican border that memory is is not something that's explicable in physiological mechanistic terms that you can try to do that, but you're just going to chase your tail on and on and on. Mm -hmm. uh, so. The ghostscape idea for me, uh, I use a joke to kind of explain what did the psychologist say to the neurologist? Nothing that the other could understand. We've got a complete <laughs> disconnect, you know? And so what I get back to is uh, uh, a map that I talked about earlier. I had to sell it to pay the lawyer for my divorce. Mm. Uh, but it was an 1832 British military map. It was the uh, section of Central Africa with a big blank space, area unexplored because of ants. And my retake on that, and this might be um, the new working title for uh, my main memory book, because uh, that's taking new forms too, but area unexplored because of ghosts. You know, and I, I really, I've, I've reconnected with a lot of the ghost lore uh, that I gathered from uh, the Pacific Island cultures that I knew. I, that was what I originally started looking into with Native American studies. Uh, I mean, every and how can who's not interested in ghost lore? You know, it just it's not possible to to mm -hmm. disengage. You know, to, oh, it's yeah, it's not possible to disengage from that that topic uh so i think that if the map isn't the terrain i think that maps are a kind of terrain and what we need to do is explore the strangest terrain of all you know the interface somehow between the private psychic experience and whatever we mean by the outside you know writing this writing this all down you want to hear about my vegas trip i'm very very curious uh because it's been a while uh since the mr t midget mr t experience i think that was the last time right that you've been out yes that was the last okay. time that i went to vegas yeah um this time well first of all on a very practical level, I was disgusted with Ace Car Rental. I want to go on record as saying that. Oh, the, okay. The hidden fees for these things are crazy. You know, you see something online that says, you know, you can get a, a Toyota Corolla for $25 a day. You think, okay, great. So you book the car and then there's, you know, $60 of hidden fees and insurance that you buy that isn't really good. And they sell you other insurance. When you get to the place, they put a $300 security deposit down on the car. So I walked out having spent $700 on a rental car that said $25 a day. 
And I was yeah. like, okay, that's Vegas. That's that's what we're dealing with here. But to get into the more interesting stuff. So the on Thursday, we went to the Neon Museum in North Vegas and uh, saw a lot of cool iconic signs. The tour guide was very great. His name was David. Shout out, David. Um, there was a, uh, the area that it was in though was very interesting and Rios and I got a real sense of, uh, kind of urban decay, I guess you could say there were a a lot of, uh, uh, there was kind of a sketchy situation where cars were blocking the roadway that I, I peeled out of really quickly. But the strip itself, where, what, where, no. Where so this, this, I was, I was, I was exploring. So okay. I, I took a, I took a right at uh, Jimmy's nugget and just went up into that neighborhood and was going back and forth. Um, Went into a gas station to buy some water and, you know, saw a woman come in who was very distressed by something. She needed to buy a lighter, but really needed to buy a lighter. And she had a conversation with a guy who was there who was like, I'm getting a lighter too. He's like, we need to hurry because in six minutes he'll be gone. I said, in six minutes, he'll be gone. Why do you need a lighter? You need to be somewhere in six minutes. The answer is I don't know, but yeah, I saw. I yeah, I see the the motion you're making. Yeah, it's it's more than likely that, right? Yeah. Um, and me, just a a kind of average, you know, white guy here in this in this gas station. I'm watching this this drama unfold of these uh, of these people buying lighters for probably crack or meth or whatever they're doing these days. So I was. To be honest with you, on Thursday, I sent you a text about it because I was just kind of shocked because I hadn't seen anything that viscerally kind of violently intense in Oklahoma. And it had been quite some time since I'd seen anything approaching that level of drug addiction and poverty since I lived in Portland. <clears throat> but even if even in Portland, it was more <clears throat> not benign, but uh, well, I guess it was just white. Right, there might have been some kind of racial perceptions about yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, black, the black people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It might, it might be some kind of internal bias that I have about about being around black people who are involved in that versus white people. Uh, a kind of sense of danger that maybe isn't completely earned and is more a product of my own biases. So I'm totally willing to accept that. But it did kind of, it did surprise me. On Friday, we went to Area 15 the Meow Wolf installation, which was awesome. Awesome. Okay. I had, yeah, well, I, I had a good time too. I, you I, know, did you, any reservations there or was it? Well, I mean, I think that the uh, installation itself, um, the kind of supermarket, I was very disappointed when I went to that. I thought it was like super uninspired. Because, you know, you have all these fake products on the shelf and it's like goat pus and moon water. And I kind of thought to myself, okay, right. Yeah. It's like, it's like a shopping mart, but everything's weird. And I just, it just wasn't quite working for me. But once you go deeper into the exhibit and you start to see some of these great, you know, halls of mirrors and, uh, you know, trees with LED 
uh, lights on the leaves. Um, I found it to be a really, a really fun experience. And I liked the, I liked the open air strip mall cyberpunk vibe of the, you know, the restaurants and the, the bars and things like that. <clears throat> so yeah, I've, I'd give, I'd give that one a good review. Uh, after area 15, oh, we went to, uh, it was funny because I was trying to keep my health up for the festival that was coming the next day. Cause I knew I was going to be in 90 degree heat in Las Vegas for 12 hours in direct sunlight. So I, I had to make sure that I didn't fall out. So I, uh, I didn't drink on the trip at all. And I ate at a Korean restaurant. I ordered the chicken ginseng soup, which was a boiling hot pot with a complete, a whole chicken minus the head and a piece of uh, ginseng root just tossed into the pot. And it tasted completely bland, uh, but made me feel really good after I ate that chicken and ginseng. I was like, oh, there's something to this whole healthy food thing. Doesn't taste great, but it makes you feel great. There was also an instance where um, Rios and I went to eat probably the best, the best breakfast tacos I've ever eaten in my entire life. And I paid for it, $60 for this meal. Uh, Yeah, yeah. But uh, the breakfast had a little bit of a snafu in it because these two uh, older white women sat down next to us and started going on a rant about trans people. And Rios did not like that. So that was kind of, kind of, and I made the critical, critical husband mistake of asking her to calm down. Oh, they don't, and Chris, they, they, they don't like that, man. They don't like that at all. I mean, that's not even doghouse 101. That's almost like wake up and find something cut off. You know, Mm -hmm. you can't do that. That's letting the whole side. No, you can't. We know better, David. We know better. We have lost so many times. We lost so many Mm -hmm. good men, so much blood to that. You've got to not fall for that trap again. I know. I was just, I was in, uh, I was, I was in ecstasy from those breakfast tacos and I wasn't thinking clearly. So, um, oh, there was this great moment too. She, she and I went to a place called the manga hole which is a Japanese comic book store. And uh, we picked out our books that we were going to buy. And here's something to be said for kind of, you know, Zoomers and customer service. As we were approaching the counter, the clerk was talking to a friend of hers. And she was going on this rant. She was like, I can't work here anymore. I hate working here. I hate the customers. I hate, and Rios and I just very slowly set our books down and just walked out. I'd never heard any customer service person do that in my life. That was actually a first for me. I'd never, she yeah. wasn't, tr- she wasn't trying to hide it. I mean, we could, everybody in the store could hear her saying these things. And I That's was like, wonderful. wow, wow. Isn't that crazy? Um, well, the that- festival was great. The festival was great. It was every band that I loved when I was in high school. Um, it was very it hot. Were... The best. Which band from the 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 past was the best in your view? I really liked Placebo. They're from London, uh, and they sounded great. Um, and the guy had a different guitar for every song. He kept having a guy bring him a tech, bring him out a new guitar for every song. Uh, System of a Down is is my favorite band of all time. I, and well, I was I say, yeah, I yeah, knew. yeah, 
Yeah, System of a Down was the headliner and uh, a very odd, I was surprised when I saw that they were the headliner um, because I I had thought that they were a bit more uh, underground. Not they're certain they're by no means an underground band, but I didn't think they were at the level of like a corn or an incubus or something like that. But they were all under System of a Down, and uh, I was about probably thirty thousand people back from the stage, but still saw it. It was very cool, very fun. And to talk about the power of System of a Down, I bought one of their T-shirts at the show. And yesterday I was getting gas at a local on-queue and uh, I had that shirt on. And this guy who looked like he had just gotten off of, you know, Pet Boys or Meineke or something like that, he saw it, he goes, System of a Down, fuck yeah. And I'm like, hell yeah, dude. And he says, what's your favorite song? And I tell him, Toxicity. And he goes, hell yeah, me too. So apparently this band is much more powerful than I, than I had initially a Mexican guy too. That was something that Rios and I noticed. It was very interesting. People think that new metal is uh, white. Rios pointed it out to me first. She said, I, she said, I'm shocked at how many black and brown people are here. And I said, yeah, it's genuine uh, uh, trailer park, lower class music that much like rap crosses race completely. And I think too that you're you're in an absolutely maybe not the only but a really crucial American city for that kind of integration. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I do think what I mean. It's not that Vegas doesn't have a lot of problems; it does. But I think you'd have to say that. I mean, and I see it. I mean, in comparison to a city like Seattle, I think that the racial integration, genuinely at street level, is just far far superior in the sense of of just more relaxed more Mm -hmm. genuine Mm -hmm. more actual interaction and uh nobody even in my experience you, you just don't think to uh well, to even really notice it. I mean, I mm-hmm. it's only mm-hmm. when someone would ask me about, say, my last group of students that I would think to sort of really, you know, think, oh, well, how many white people do it? You know, I mean, you just don't notice it. It's uh, and that I think is the mark of of where real integration happens, you know. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad that that sounds like it was um I don't know, a pretty good report. Let's just go back to the sketchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, situation um because here's what uh what i think of with uh particularly well downtown vegas and a, and you probably didn't get there unless you make a mistake driving of d street which is there's an overpass down there it's near of course martin luther king boulevard which is almost always uh a kind of tricky street in whatever city that that appears uh but there are very very uh haunting uh predominantly black dudes who have some very strange improvised homeless clothing and they wander uh in a kind of hypnotic state that that when I've seen them, and I've had just quite a bit of experience before I left, I was down there for various reasons. It's not like 
there are some people who are just drugged out of their minds. There's no question. But what I'm thinking about with with these uh, African American men is is not a clear uh, drug state, and it's not always men. Um, I almost have a video frame of this woman, a black woman, walking past my car. Uh, in you know in the rain and doesn't rain very often in Vegas so it was a really important moment and she had one of those faces of that would have been potentially just absolute stunning beauty and yet something was it wasn't like the drug ravaged things you see in magazines of you know this was so and so before meth and this is no it's not that simple but it was such a powerful sense of vacancy as if she was really, really a hologram uh, and not fully there. And yet the sense of tortured self uh, was not like a vacant robot sort of thing. And I, it was so powerful. I mean, I couldn't, I was about ready to drive away and I couldn't for a while. I had to, uh, I just had to chill and just let that vibe you know, kind of do something because it really didn't seem like a decoded to that, oh, homelessness or a uh, hot chick who got, you know, hooked on drugs and now she's, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, none of the formulas worked. Powerful sense of vacancy would be a great album title as a side note. Um, yeah. Okay. I, in fact, I was on D Street and Martin Luther King. And uh, I think I went from D to, G. I think that's that's where there were a lot of um dead ends and there were a lot of these houses that were incredible. I'm always thinking about what kind of houses would look good on film. Yeah. And and there's a there's a there are hills there. It's a actually kind of a slightly hilly area. And there was a hill that was going up, right? So imagine a house that's kind of split level, but you could kind of see that the the facade actually looked like something out of Beirut where it was just kind of exposed, but there were people inside and there were TVs going on inside of it. And I couldn't believe that you could, you know, drive a street down and get a clear view to downtown and see um, not the Rio, but uh, one of those hotels, right? You could see one of the hotels from there. Um, I thought that there right now, my perception of poverty and my perception of of all of this is that everything everything feels faster because I think I think about something like uh, like Taos, which, as we discussed on a previous episode, apparently does have its problems, but everything felt like it was in a much kind of slower mode. And that's the mode that I've experienced in Oklahoma as well. It's almost like you don't notice that the crime is that bad because it happens at a slower pace. Vegas crime, which makes sense considering the the time slip that Vegas is in, Vegas seems much more frenetic. Everybody was just moving all the time. Even the homeless people that I saw, they were they were stalking down the road or they were, uh, you know, there was one guy who was kind of 
feverishly pulling things out of a cooler on the side of the road and then putting them back into the cooler in a kind of OCD back and forth way. It felt, and that could very potentially be a product, as I said, of it being so close to Vegas and Vegas is very interesting time slip. But, uh, but that's what I noticed. The closest thing that I've seen was probably the, the tent city on Burnside in Portland, where half the people on the street are, have completely lost it. Um, yeah. And the other yeah. half have lost it too, as we talked about earlier today, but just in their own kind of way. Everybody's insane now. It's just, are you addicted to fentanyl or not? Yeah. Or, you know, fentanyl or ideology, you know, I mm-hmm. mean, I think that it, it, we're in an age of such pervasive mental illness. Uh, it, it's hard to know, you know, really where the diagnostic spectrum could even possibly be introduced. But I think that what you're saying is um, my kind of overall takeout is, and, and this would be just if you could verify it, is that in general sort of intuitive terms, your sense of Vegas being harsher, gritty. Mm-hmm. Uh, gritty is a good word, yeah. Yeah, that that's kind of, um, and I, I think that that's kind of a consensus sort of view. But the one thing that I think is really interesting, because and you and I both uh, have sort of, we, we can easily romanticize 1970s New York, and you've got this whole sort of, you know, alternative life that you couldn't possibly have lived because it was before mm-hmm. you, know, you were born and gritty would be a word that i think would often be described you know you would use to describe the entertainment of that time and the atmosphere and the cars and the chicks in hot shorts and you know uh eighth avenue uh hookers and murder you know all sorts of stuff like that uh i don't i don't know if the new grittiness of Vegas is something that has, I don't know, maybe it's just too pointy and authentic to be romanticizable. And it doesn't, Mm -hmm. maybe there's no, for me, part of it is there's no soundtrack to it that I can feel good about. You know, it's, Mm -hmm. it it just feels nasty, you know? It's nasty. It's nasty. And I think, Music is a big part of it. The other thing that just popped up, which is one of my one of my three things, it's it's the phone. So actually, you know what? I'm gonna get into that really quick because this might help with the okay. with the conversation. So my 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 three moments, uh 2001, 9-11, right? That was a big one. That was the introduction of uh what we know now as the security state, the Patriot Act. Uh, surveillance, you know, all those paranoid fantasies about the government listening in on you become real. It's also the first time I feel like that they just kind of admit to doing something and find out that people kind of go, all right, I guess that's fine if you want to. 2007, the introduction of the iPhone. This is huge for me. This is the crux of a lot of what I think is going on right now. I think 2007, the introduction of the iPhone was not intended to be what it is today. Steve Jobs very specifically in his presentation for the iPhone in 2007 focused on how cool it was that you could have a phone that was also your iPod. 
Most kids these days don't even know what an iPod is. They've always had the iPhone. Yeah. Um, and then 2020, COVID. Uh, those are the three big moments. I think COVID is a melding of the two. It's a melding of the kind of smartphone uh, sort of algorithm focused humanity that we see now mixed in with that safety propaganda, security state, 9-11 mode of existence. And the way that I kind of explain this, you brought something you said earlier in the episode actually helped me uh, flesh out what I was trying to say, but you were talking about memory and where memory is located. And as we know from the show, uh, it's not located anywhere. Uh, It's non-local. And uh, it's especially non-local in the case of plants. Plants clearly have memory. They have no brains. Where's the memory? Right. Uh, Sheldrake, the, the antenna theory. Um, but I was thinking about this in terms of AI and what separates human beings from AI. And it is memory, right? Because human beings have memory and AI has algorithms that they stack on top of each other. It's a building process. And ours is much more uh, non-local, we, we pick it out of the ether. It's a very mysterious process. And so I think the, the term that I have for what's going on with people right now is that it's human beings who are supposed to have a, a human beings are supposed to have a minimalist, respectful, spiritual relationship with their memory. And instead, what we've become is what I'm calling uh, algorithm hoarders. So the way you see a hoarder with tons of takeout boxes and dead cats and shit like that, we've become hoarders of, of, of algorithms, which are fundamentally inhuman. We're not meant to uh, uh, adopt and attempt to emulate an algorithm which I think shows a way out for technology, by the way, too, which is recognizing it for what it is. You don't have to become an engine uh, to to understand cars. You don't have to adopt the mode of an engine to understand how to fix a car or how to use it as a tool. But the tricky thing about algorithms is that it has that that waxy, how did you put it? The powerful sense of vacancy, Uh, Mm. but still a kind of human-esque characteristic a slot machine ability to hook our basest dopaminic urges and 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 draw us in but we're supposed to be more distant from that because we have memory the computers have algorithms and the two are not supposed to to cross paths so big info dump but i thought that that might that might kind of help because when you're talking about vegas and how it's nastier and 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 grimier Something about the way human beings thought in the 1970s has to be fundamentally different from how people think today because of all the algorithms. And it makes everything uglier, even the poverty, <laughs> as, right. as fucked up as that might sound. Right. Well, look, I think what you said was very helpful. And I think it connects directly with my theory of consciousness. And with a focus on memory, because I think memory is the problem. 
uh, memory is the most misunderstood category, the most abused term, and all the, the boundaries blur because we use the word in so many different contexts, uh, it loses meaning, you know, in a basic Gilbert Ryle sense. But if you have this notion of containment, which is the George, you know, uh, Lakoff, Mark Johnson approach, mm-hmm. you inherently have a space to be filled, right? So you start to fill it and you in- invariably get uh, some sort of, of storage problem, a hoarding problem. Uh, then you have then the access, how you find it. And everyone experiences this in very practical terms. And that is why any of these models just is diabolical. It doesn't matter how uh, it has to be so lean and mean and well run like a really good warehouse but even so you still have the problem conceptually of night see you in the morning okay you have the problem of who is the person going to access that you know what part of you've got a hauntedness there you've got a distance you've got the homunculus homunculus problem so that's where a lot of people leave that and just think, well, there's a basic problem with containment and store. And I think there is that. Absolutely. There's certainly a problem with the ghostly double or homunculus, the hidden observer. Who's the, who's the warehouse foreman. If you know, it's just too weird, but my point, and I think you're bringing this out really well is that the storing of algorithms is like storing toxic materials we don't know what the algorithms really contain they always contain hidden messages they have hidden levels of coding and we end up storing material if we do want to stick with that idea that terribly distorts our mental and emotional states and that we think that we are masters of these algorithms, even if we don't know how many we have and don't have any inventory, no Dewey decimal system or coding, you know, nothing. We still think we're in control, but we're in control of things that are entirely layered with all sorts of junk, uh, spyware, all sorts of things that we yes, don't yeah. want to need, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. The moment we entertain that larger storage and algorithm hoarding idea, we are in a toxic emergency, psychically speaking. And you see it. You see it everywhere. We don't even need to qualify what we're saying because everybody knows what we're talking about. There's a difference between if you were alive. I I suppose I should say anybody who's my age or older, because I lived in both worlds, I lived pre-internet and in the internet age that's a great he lived in both worlds he lived in both worlds i I, you know i occupy a really we both as a matter of fact you have a different perspective than i do because more of your life has been uh without internet than with right mine is pretty much split down the middle wait a minute more live without no i i don't think so more has been no, I'm on the other side of that chasm. What do you mean? Oh, let's see. Well, when do you say, What? Are we, when, when's the starting point? I got the internet when I was 15. I'm 36 now. 
Okay. All right. So the internet has existed longer than that, but I'm talking about home what, use. What year are you putting that at? That would have been 2002. 2001 okay. 2002 I, I i it's before then really mm -hmm. i think mm -hmm. so i would i would i would go back 10 years i think mm -hmm. yeah i mean i was conducting business and then so when did you first get the internet i'm trying to think about that i had my i mean i was using a computer for word processing at least uh 1988 I don't know, something like that. I, right, I, but I, early on, on, online access. Online access. I is that I was doing uh, um, Yahoo. Google hadn't come up yet, but I think that was happening oh, certainly mid-90s. Yeah. Mid-90s? Okay, okay, fair enough. So we're, you know, based on when we adopted it, yeah, we, have, yeah. we, have a, we have a similar uh, experience with that. But I, I do think that, um, you know, Oh shoot, I've lost it. But you know what we're talking about essentially is just that there there is now a different mode. I like what you said about uh, you know with my hoarding analogy, with your container analogy, and with your spyware and malware analogy. Um, there's something about code that's so solid that is so antithetical to the more air based quality of memory and thinking, right? And that solidity, I think, is what has really started to mess with people's minds. Because if you have an air-like quality, if you're an airhead, so to speak, you can think and you can be a bit more elastic and malleable, and you can adopt different positions, right? Uh, if, if information is solid, if it's code, if it's unchanging, that creates a sense of certainty, but there's also code that doesn't, uh, uh, that contradicts itself, right? And so now I think you see uh, perhaps more than in the past, you see people who have just completely, uh, uh, it's like oil and water, their ideas are, but they hold them both to be completely true. And it's creating in everybody schizophrenia. Add to that social media where you create a kind of, a parasocial relationship with people who you interact with online and their thoughts start to become your thoughts. And it, there's, th th there's this inability. Uh, it's, it's a great uh, uh, kind of paradoxical thing where the more algorithmic information that comes in, uh, the more schizophrenic you become, but it's, it's like a harder schizophrenia. It feels like it's more, it's like, it's more rooted. It's, it's colder. Uh, it's more uh, middle management schizophrenia, maybe. Um, yeah, that yeah. I like it. You've often sort of slipped in middle management as a term, and I think it's really a great way to put. I, I think that's a, a wonderful it kind of brings it to a, a certain level. Has a tonal quality that I think is very, very apt. But you know, something in what you were saying, I just triggered. Uh, what I think is really promising beginning for a story and possibly an alternative kind of uh universe for a series very low key but 
Philip K. Dickian, uh, one of my better students, has a has a really quiet piece that starts, and it's based on uh, some mental health issues that that he was having. He's a a parking lot attendant at a kind of you know not mainstream sort of not important Vegas parking lot sort of security but not you know nothing really important but it's multi-level and he's bored you know and reading and he's trying to sort of you know uh but one day and it's just so quiet and there's nothing going on and he's grateful for that right because that means less hassle a car alarm starts really just going off on the level below so, you know, he thinks, oh, well, and he gets out of his booth and walks down the ramp. And this is where I think this this writer has some potential. There are no cars. There's no cars. Yeah, that's where I thought it was going. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so and, and this becomes this kind of. Uh, you know, he and he goes back to the booth and, and then the alarm goes off, you know, it, it happens again. And I thought, look, that's a good you know a starting premise for something and i said i'm I'm really interested in how you're going to develop that but you know that's what this is that's what i'm holding up my phone that's what yeah. this is that's what he's channeling is this phone that's constantly dinging and when you open it nine times out of ten it's something completely empty yeah. Ding, amber alert okay as though well, i'm going to remember the have you seen the ones for silver alerts silver alerts are older folks oh, with no. dementia who've who've escaped their their handlers oh uh, oh yeah. well, that's beautiful yeah. i think i have actually now i think but i just that is i'm glad you reminded me that's uh, that's lovely that's yeah lovely. <laughs> silver alert <laughs> but uh-huh. I, yeah there there's something because you and i today we were discussing um the various mental illnesses that are going on in the world. And, you know, listeners, uh, I think it's fine to let them know that it, it really, it gets us down at times because we're, we're sort of our hairs blown back by just how messed up everybody is and how nobody seems to be interested in thinking or art or, or any of these things. And I've been getting increasingly disturbed in the manner of the of the rec- of the recent convert, you know, because I've been doing, uh, uh, I was telling you today that I've been mowing my lawn with no headphones, and I've been playing with my son with no headphones, and I've been putting my phone away and not looking at it. And oh my goodness, it's so crazy. But the flip side of that, the recent convert side of that, is that you begin to notice just how much people are on their phones all the time. And man, I'm telling like it's really starting to freak me out when when I go into the grocery store and everybody is just they're pushing their carts with their forearms and they have their phone up and they're looking at it. It's weird, man. And I I sincerely believe that if these things disappeared tomorrow, society would be better off for it. I think everybody would get healthier. Or they'd be so confused they wouldn't know what to do. I kind of am afraid that they wouldn't uh, be able to function. Uh, he, here's another way to, to extend that, I think, is um, my uh, 
a former literary agent anyway, uh, is a street photographer as well, uh, is in his, you know, part-time of New York. And he had just a whole fixation on people on Manhattan streets, you know, looking at cell phones. And I remember I said to him, look, you got to leave this alone. We're, we get it. It's been done. It's become a, and it's one of those, you could extend that to the, 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 the woman with doing a selfie, you know, in mm-hmm. the beginning. Those became cliched poses in a way that just can't be dealt with as, as a commentary, as an anthropological insight into today. But yet you couldn't tell the story of our time in, in, on any level without those images. And what's more, those performances are not going away. People don't care that they, they are looking cliched, that they are looking ridiculous, that they could be, you know, it, it's, it's behavior we don't see. People don't care that they're saying ridiculous things. That if they're halfway a thinking person, if they have an IQ over 100, you would think that they'd have to know that the things that they're saying are insane, that they're not real. But they don't. I really like that you said that because now I'm thinking of uh, a term, uh, you know how they call it duck face, the kissy face that women make when they, ideological duck face, right? Like, you know what you're doing is kind of cringy and uh, you know, everybody around you who's looking at you is thinking, Oh, there goes that, you know, that chick's taking a picture of herself, trying to look cute, whatever people do that with ideas and they don't, but they don't care. They're like, yeah, fine, whatever. But I get, you know, I get 10,000 likes on it when I say it. So I don't really care what people around me think. It's at that level, it's just deteriorated to the most basic algorithmic uh, formula that just, uh, I don't know how long that can go on. I do like how all those, like the chick who does do those, look, most they, they do realize that they have to have really hot bodies, you know, be, to be able to pull that off with any cred. So they have to deliver a little bit on that promise. Otherwise it's just, a, they could just get burned up, you know, mm-hmm. they, you know, the hate would just, and the ridicule would be so total. Uh, but then if you know, like, and I, I, I can't remember where I saw this, but it's certainly an opinion I have those photos those kinds of photos and they come in different poses and stuff but but everything that the the hot chick posing as the hot Mm -hmm. chick for the likes and who cares what there's any other significance always the potential takeout is oh victim of murder you know Mm. disappeared you know Mm -hmm. it's always you know what i mean yeah totally I mean, the University of Idaho murder victims were just proof of that. You know, you start to think, I, I can't separate those chicks from their fate. Mm. And it's like their looks, it, didn't that have something to do with what I think it did? I don't know if people want to hear that. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Huh? Yeah, it's the it's the woman in trouble pose, basically. It's the... Well, it's the it's the reboot of Hawaii Five O, also inventing mm-hmm. digital, as we yep. talked about 
you know, a couple episodes ago, maybe last one, last one. Uh, it's a whole bunch of things. Yeah. When you invent the duck face, you're also inventing severed body parts in the trunk of a car. It would be an interesting way to think, just to speculate. <laughs> yeah, did just... the did the did the murders create the duck face? Yeah. Like, the, the the need for a new outlet for serial murder retro causally created the Instagram ho pose. <laughs> it doesn't do any harm in a creative writing imaginative sense to sort of just throw that out there as a potential yeah world you know dynamic for a series or something new ways to kill that's my uh that's my alien idea too it has to do with time okay um i'm I'm ready i'm ready if you're if you're ready to bring yeah 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 as as we've done in the past two episodes um, i'm really interested to hear uh what you have to say and how you might uh how you might build but i'm thinking that um the extraterrestrial mental health problem might be something called time flu. Uh, so you could get time flu uh, n- first from traveling through space at really fast speeds. I'm using the idea that I've heard some indigenous people of, uh, I believe it's, I believe Native Americans here might have said it. I, I don't know. But the idea of traveling in a plane as going too fast for your soul to catch up. Right. So when you travel right. through space and you bend time, uh, it's it's a little bit hard for time to catch up. So I started thinking about what, what the flu that we get, the physical flu even is. There are a lot of different interesting ideas about the purpose of a flu because we know that we get it. We know that a virus, how it, how it transmits, how you get sick. We all have been sick, but why? Why does it exist? What's the T loss of a you know, of a flu. And some people believe that a flu is actually a, a kind of operating system update the way your computer gets those. Uh, Some people believe that flus are actually kind of protective in that way. Um, So a time update, right? We might be in need of time flu to get an operating system update as to how to interact with these new forms of time that we've been shown, right? We're being, we're like uh, native to use a very crass metaphor. Everybody, please don't get mad at me, but you know, like Indians with smallpox blankets, right? These might be like time smallpox blankets is my idea, right? That's a perfectly valid and very interesting uh-huh. analogy. I, um, And then uh, just to kind of close it out and throw it back to you, had one more thing oh the way that it's transmitted right if you have time flu and i don't i'll know that something is being transmitted if you start responding to my future self during this conversation if bits of future conversation leak into the present i'll know that's oh shit i'm about to come down with time flu and i need to get myself to a bed really quickly so that, that's what I've got with that. Oh, you know, one of, I think it really, I, I, other people have mentioned this, but one of my special symptoms growing up, I noticed it long, long ago as a kid, that when you, if you're really getting 
a cold or or possibly sometimes you could fight it off but there was a taste in the back of the throat you know obviously yep. sort of something to do with phlegm but a very peculiar sense and it kind of would uh fire up the tongue in a kind of and the salivary glands in a kind of you know acidic sort of way mm-hmm. so the, the symptoms and the the little early signals of time flu uh setting in well i think for starters that any that Time has is, is got to be uh, at the heart of the most interesting ideas about any kind of, of mental health, mental illness problem. And there's a lot of, of reference about that. Andrew Sims, uh, Symptoms of the Mind, you know, we've talked, one of his essential diagnostic points is that someone who's really is on the mental health spectrum, however you want to define that. Uh, he gets around that controversy by saying, look, no, it begins with some sort of disassociation with time. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and that then gives him the latitude to talk about different kinds of problems, uh, reflect different kinds of problems with time. Uh, and I, so I think that's really important. Other people that we really admire, like Philip K. Dick was so into that. So it, it just seems very difficult to avoid that. And I think you've done something interesting with it. Lately, as in like earlier this afternoon, I was driving and I, I thought, you know, this whole sense of you can't go back in time, which is a kind of mood that the, the whole culture is deeply embedded in if not drowning in from multiple points of view and we were talking earlier about uh in the last episode about thomas wolf and of time in the river and all these sort of directional models and metaphors for time and i thought you know all of that's just bullshit it's just we know it's not working we know there that we're in every instance where it works as an idea, as a model, as an analogy, it leaves so much out mm-hmm. or it really confuses things. And I hear, well, here's what hit me. If you only have one way to go, okay, then the concept of direction is meaningless. Yes, correct. I mean, you don't need the, I mean, directions are only important if you have options. If mm-hmm. that's why the compass exists, that's why all those, but if you really don't have any mobility in time, if, you're, if your movement is forward, well, then it's not forward. And mm-hmm. it's, it, there's no point in talking about in directional spatial terms. Get, you know, if you do that, you're just victim of your own metaphorical dysfunction you know it, mm-hmm. it just doesn't help you it doesn't help you no I, I yeah i really love that that opened up a lot of ideas uh for me because that is how three-dimensional space works and it would make sense that the higher up you get in dimensions in fact the more directions you could you could possibly go we're just stuck in the body right the, the body is you know we're located here right now I think, maybe. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> certainly one level of entrapment. 
And then, I mean, we seem to be enormously eager to entrap ourselves often in levels. And, and while we're claiming the desire for freedom and flexibility, we also turn around and, and have hysterical blaming fits about any kind of structure or architecture that uh, that might, in fact, really allow us great freedom and mobility. Right. But right. we resent it. And we resent hierarchies. And I mean, it's so much of the simplistic nonsense aimed at, at Jordan Peterson, it was just a misunderstanding of that. It's somehow hierarchies and authorities and structures and architecture are inherently bad and that they represent some sort of patriarchal, you know, restrictions mm -hmm. like no, 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 nothing is on that level necessarily. That's that's only one of, of, of many levels, and it's certainly not an interesting one, and it's not what is being discussed. It's much more on uh, levels of, well, how do uh, electrons uh, merge and form larger structures? And how in hell does thought work, you know, yeah. where you can't put that kind of uh, even basic microphysics frame on it? You know, it's just... Uh, What's happening again? This is just kind of because I agree with you. I was watching um, Jordan Peterson's YouTube today, and I think his ideas people like to bastardize them and kind of make them overly simplistic. But I do. I think he's interesting. I think that anytime you get to that level of of fame, people are able to find clips of you in the thousands of hours that you've done interviews and podcasts. Uh, where you've said something silly or whatever and you know he's got kind of a funny voice Canadian you know so he's kind of an easy easy target but some of it's really interesting some of it's really interesting but um well also what, I'll just slip in then that when you reach that certain level of fame and so few intellectuals uh if we can call him that as opposed to pop entertainers reach that point what we often judge these people by is, is by the rantings of their fans, not anything they've said. Mm -hmm. We know that that's true in the movie business and pop music and stuff, but we've had so few literary and intellectual celebrities, particularly mm -hmm. in the last 10 years. We forget that, you know, sorry. Yeah. That, I just wanted to slip no, that no, no, totally. Yeah. No, I mean, that's what happened to Alex Jones too. I mean, he got fined a billion dollars based on the actions of his fans, not him. Yeah what somebody who heard him say something and then you know took it in a kind of uh you know schizophrenic way and went and did something stupid but you know um when you have a thought this this when you were talking this just came to me yeah what what is that like like what's going on i'm thinking right now <laughs> this is kind of a trippy thing to think about to think about thinking what's happening Words are not appearing in my mind's eye as I'm speaking to you. And there's no pre, uh, sometimes when I talk to you, I'm, I'm assembling thoughts in a way that I can then say them, but not right now. That's not happening right now. This is really starting to freak me out, actually. That this is all just coming out as we're having a conversation because yeah, who's doing it? It's weird, it's, man. It's, it's fucking strange. And there's no way to turn the Western materialist, neuroelectric, neurochemical reductionist yeah. 
argument to bear. It, what happens is the moment you do that, the thought you're having becomes this enormously complex mechanism. And the whole point of mechanism is to make things simpler. If mm-hmm. if if mm-hmm. the reductive process creates more and more and more complexity, and you still have never explained, well, why that thought? You know, and not, I mean, you if you're, well, we've got the mechanism, we've got David's electro neuroelectric chemical mm-hmm. map. Mm-hmm. We've got the idea of what, you know, oh, David, stop thinking about that chick with a hot ass. You know, <laughs> we we haven't we haven't explained very much and we have created the need for talk about AI. We have a, a, an AI farm, a super farm of grunt computers that is like the size of Illinois and growing. And we've really only, we're still on that chick with a hot ass and you've maybe thought of 15 other things and have moved on and have moved and you were moving on then. And none of that, is going to ever, ever explain anything. Because what are the thoughts, those 15 thoughts that I had, where are they? Where did they come from? What did they look like when they were in the the, the seat of my mind? What, man, I need to go do some mushrooms or something because this is, uh, this is tripping me out. <laughs> you know, you just think, yeah, I don't want to, uh, uh, you know, sound, you know, non-committal to any idea that we're doing, but it really kind of defies a, a, a clear definition, and it's kind of really cool in that way. That, I mean, everything that I just said, because we're talking about this, everything that I just said, I'm now thinking about what preempted the words that are coming out of my mouth. I'm not. Sh- I don't know what that. I don't know what those are. I don't even know what's happening right now. I'm beginning to feel like a third man watching myself talk. Well, I think that is as as bizarre an experience as that is. And some people that just terrifies even a slight glimpse of that experience, they can't deal. But I think you and I both kind of savor it and somehow have enough. I'm tripping, dude. I'm having fun. Yeah. So there's... And I think leaning into that hauntedness and and thinking, well, we don't have an answer to that, but at least we have some dim, misty idea of what the unexplored territory, where that begins, what, what we're leaving behind to get there. And I I don't I feel like I'm at a point in my life where I can really embrace that and savor it. And I feel this sudden kind of inner sort of not strength, but reinforcement. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the feeling I often get talking to you. I think that that there is something, and and you've said that, but you know, thinking, practicing thinking together. And I hope that listeners do take some solace and and feel some reinforcement there because both David and I, you know, have bouts of tremendous cultural loneliness. Uh, I mean, sometimes it just absolutely makes me double over, I feel. And yet when we're in the, you know, when you find someone who you are resonating with at the same frequency, don't you, feel, I mean, suddenly you think, 
this is what I live for. This is what this is why it's this is why it's so painful to me when people who I do consider my friends do the ghosting thing, right? And and you know, stop talking to me because the thing that I value the most, like when I feel the most alive, is playing with my son, talking to my wife about her day, talking to you, talking to Kelby. You know, like that's where I get real value when I'm by myself. I'm just thinking and the thoughts don't have any anywhere to go, right? There's no, there's nothing to bounce them off of. And I'm just absorbing these algorithmically delivered horror stories about you know, take your pick, whatever the thing of the day is. And um I do. Yeah, I do. I suffer from from really crushing depression, you know, that that I I move through because you know, it's not like I can take myself out of the equation anymore. Right now there's all this stuff that I, that I have to do. So you have to, you just, you learn how to exist with it without there being like a real solution. And I think that what you and I are talking about is what a lot of people are going through right now. I think a lot of people are feeling this where they're just ambiently sad or depressed all the all the time and and it's because we're supposed to be kicking it and and vibing on this like i would encourage everybody to do this now that i've done it because i'm i feel like i'm on a roller coaster right now but yeah start trying to think about your thinking and where it where it's coming from especially when you're talking to somebody I'm doing it right now and it's just freaking me out so much because the words keep coming and I don't know where the, where these words are coming from. <laughs> this is it. I mean, people are looking for mystery and wonder and things they haven't thought about. Well, just inside all of it, that's where it is. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. completely mysterious. And if you can get with it and get the right balance so you're not terrified, so you can actually embrace it a little bit. And and it is kind of like it's also like being in 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 you know no gravity, you know, and you've got to kind of like you know learn about sort of you know it's mm-hmm. take some calm to yeah. deal with. It. But if you if you have that rush of excitement. I think that you, you know, suddenly there's no party that you could ever arrive at. You don't know someone important because you mm. know, yourself, you know, that's mm. the thing. I mean, I, I, that sounds sort of hokey, but I think that's really true. No, you, it's totally, and it's totally Dallas too, by the way, I'm, you know, I've been on my Dallas kick Yeah, and they're always trying to, to, this is stuff that I've listened to and read, but that I don't think I've really internalized until right now, which is, it is this idea of, you know, who is the you who's thinking these thoughts or who's saying these things? And I always took that to be more of a, oh, right, because there's like a spiritual self, you know, you know what I mean? But no, it's a very literal thing. Who's thinking? Yeah. Who's speaking? Yeah. What's all this about all these pronouns, you know? It's like... <laughs> What's this about all the pronouns? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you have that, right? I mean, like that that is a completely algorithmically decided controversy. And I know that it is because if you had told people about that before the scaffolding, 
of modernity had like set the stage for people to talk about that kind of thing, everybody would have been like, what the hell are you talking about? That sounds crazy. I Well, it certainly wouldn't have been predicted with the kind of clarity that you might expect from the really visionary minds that that uh, have been eclipsed in the you know but but some of our heroes it's amazing as much as they could see of of where things were going now there's so many things that they didn't get with and i'm not saying those things are necessarily very interesting i think mm-hmm. that might be what, what killed it because some of our heroes are going oh no they're not going to be that stupid are they nah oh yes Oh, yes, you have no idea how dumb we can get. Just when you think we can't get dumber, the bottom drops out. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's 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 like this thing of like, oh, no. And I think it is almost more of a race to be dumber rather than crude, crass, cruel, brutal. I mean, those things enter in. But I, I think it's more innocently dumb, you know, just, mm-hmm. you know, buffaloed lazy bewildered fat of mind you know just fat of mind i think it would be cool to be a buffalo though in one life i would like to be a buffalo oh i know i i love buffalo but to be buffaloed you know to be bamboo <laughs> oh to be to buffaloed be... okay gotcha gotcha yeah, I yeah, misunderstood. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah i was gonna say it actually would be kind of i would like to be all the different animals at one point or another i think that would be kind of cool I think cool to be. I think that's a dog or a bird. Well, this isn't this is part of the you know the continuum of life idea that in fact we are that, that there is a prismatic, lungless pygmy salamander inside you right now. I Uh, like that. I like that. I think what I think that what we need to do is go deep into that mysterious interior with our field logs and be prepared to collect some specimens and to engage with whatever strangeness we find because yeah we are all the characters in the dream and we're all the creatures in in the hidden interior I just had this vision a very vivid vision while you were talking about a with a pygmy salamander with sunglasses on who's shining a spotlight behind me and the spotlight's going through a prism like on Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon oh, and wow. that's what's cu- that's what's coming out of my mouth <laughs> oh wow well you know i mean we you and I are natural stoners whatever generation we're from whatever we substances we're doing we we have those images just naturally in hand i yeah. love i love that album yeah it's cool man it goes with your your cargo profit motorcycles ex aging skateboard new super dad god profit thing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think i think that every episode of the show we get closer and closer to to something actually really really profound and this one might be the most profound one for me yet just the practice i'm interested in what your tools and tips are we'll get to those next but i am i want to encourage anyone who's listening to this to do what i just did while chris and i were talking and i was you know tripping out from it without driving yourself crazy 
just start thinking about where are your words coming from when your girlfriend or your boyfriend, your wife, your husband comes home, when you're talking to your kid, it's easier to do so if it's indirect, like with a toddler, when a toddler, when my son kicks me in the face and I suddenly, you know, feel like a shock of anger, like, oh, what the hell? That's a little bit more easy to understand because you can you can start to think, okay, well, he can kick me in the face and there's nerves in there and that's pain. And so the pain came out as, but when I'm, but when he's sitting there and trying to talk to me, he's trying to say something and I don't know what it is. And I'm saying things back to him. Who's speaking here? What's, what's going on? What, I guess what, I guess what I'm, you know, there's this really interesting idea of stimulus and response. It's written like a formula. It's SR with two parentheses between them and a big space. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the idea is to focus on that space between stimulus and response. And in the context I was reading it, it was about not, not responding to your phone as soon as the stimulus occurs, right? Like it, trying to extend that space out, but that space between thought and speech is so small that it's almost unnoticeable. And I think that's what's really interesting about this whole thing. Like, what's what is is there even a parentheses going on right well, now? That's that's a very very valid question and a very important starting point because what you're, I mean, you're not only questioning the validity of that model on any level, but certainly as visually framed. But without there's a hidden element there that a lot of people would miss entirely is that it's tempo, mm-hmm. it's scale. You, you you just change, you know, the tempo. I mean, is that physically possible if we're talking about a material physics explanation of things? Is are are the delays and time frames that we're working with? And that's what I was thinking of with my band name, Delay Action Hall of Mirrors, because mm-hmm. it's very distorting. Uh, and I was thinking of this as an art project of having uh, a kind of gallery space turned into a kind of hall of mirrors. And then occasionally they would be broken up with scrims of, of translucent but not transparent fabric. So you might see shadows of people passing through or the lighting might be such that you see your, your own shadow. Mm-hmm. intermingled might be a couple of tv screens one like a really this is my dream idea one a beautiful flat screen plasma tv and another like a, a funky sort of closed circuit security you know 7-eleven parking lot thing on the the one beautiful screen you you do see yourself you know because the video camera is hidden somewhere and you see you have that validation and stuff on the other, you see completely p- people who can't be in the gallery. They're just not there. And you might see something really strange, something that might, you know, scare some people. And and I think it'd be interesting to sort of then be viewing this from on high and seeing what the mm. different reactions are. But mm. in any case, what you're talking about with that stimulus response notion is, has everything to do with timing, everything. You know, and think about this. This is something I've noticed and I'm really exploring in in the parts of the memory book that really do deal with conventional notions of memory. Because, of course, my real goal is to explode all of those 
But how often do we forget something? We think, well, you know, memory problem. And yet we do remember it. You know, my thing is things want to be remembered. Things want to be found. Gravity of mind, as well as gravity, you know, attractant. You know, everything attracts in proportion to its mass, you know. And I think that does work. So everything is about tempo and scale, you know. Everything wants to be remembered. Why do people lose their keys? They haven't forgotten something they've misplaced an object i don't accept that that's necessarily the same thing hmm. i think when you say well i forgot where i put something well you've forgotten where you put a lot of i mean what is that relative to you know hmm. i think it's a really miswired notion of memory where you're really saying possession and you're really saying a verb to have and to own, mm -hmm. and to be contained. All you're really doing is, is saying, well, this is a language frame I've been handed. These are the moments when I'm attentive to it. I'm going to use the terms in those ways, in those places. And every other time or many other times, I'm going to completely forget about that, really, as in ignore, as in excise, mm -hmm. not, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, sorry. So you're, I, you're, you're, no, that's really interesting, though, because so... That means that people are, um, do you think there's intentionality behind not putting it in the container? Or do you think that it's just distraction or, or, or I'm, I'm, because what I'm thinking from what you're saying is that it's an exciting idea, but that anything can be recovered if you Correct. wanted to recover it, if you wanted to recover it. I buy that. I buy that, but I wonder why it's so, for something so trivial, why would it be so hard to retrieve? Because it's not trivial in an algorithmic sense. You're thinking that the, the subject could be, like say a stupid song lyric. You can't remember that. I'm saying that's like a template and layers of coding that have whole in levels of, that you've built into it, but things that have built you. Your, mm -hmm. your larger mm -hmm. semantic structures. Mm -hmm. So that thing that appears to be very trivial is actually a, a component that is carrying an enormous amount of energy weight and, and a, a potential uh, transmitting agent of greater importance than you might think, you know? Uh, so, and, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to, uh, to sound funny, but what that would mean is that misplacing your keys or forgetting where you put your keys is directly tied into something bigger that you have intentionally pushed away oh i think that that uh the, the psychological element of all of this is so blatantly obvious and frankly you know not, not really very interesting i think freud did an awful lot uh to mm -hmm. get us to where that really is i think okay. that you know constantly uh, I mean, but look at things like keys, passports, things that we often dream about, emblematic, symbolic things. Of I can't mobility. find my passport, by the way. Sorry to interrupt you, but I've, yeah, I've, I've lost my passport. Well, that, you know, so it, these things just keep 
Uh, and, and I think that we often reveal ourselves to ourselves with these little moments of, well, why, why did I, you know, forget what, what what's going <laughs> on? Uh, and that's the little other, that's the hidden, you know, going, oh, I need that's, to that's a cool way to look at it. That's a, that's, I, said, I, 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 I did that the other day, actually. I, um, well, funny enough, I can't remember what it was that I lost at the time, but I do remember. And you can't, the yeah. other David, the other can't. David knows the other David knows. Uh, but when I was talking to, uh, and I do this for everything. Now, when I lose something, I just tell Rios or whoever it is. I'm like, well, there's a purpose for that. There's a reason why I can't find it right now. So I'm not, I basically, I essentially, I don't spend any time anymore looking for, uh, you know, misplaced keys. Uh, I don't really lose my keys anymore, but like the passport, I'm not going to look for it. It'll pop back up. One day I'll have, I'll get a hair up my ass to go clean out the cabinet above my washer and dryer. And I'll find my passport in a corner there. And I'll be, I'll think to myself, Oh, apparently I'm ready for international travel again. That's good. Uh, but relax. Okay. Cause it, it, it's not lost. Mm-hmm. That's that's a weird. This is the lost explorer's idea. You know, I mean, we've got to really reposition that whole thinking because that's that's super. Uh, the potential for a new kind of navigational frame, and this is kind of one of the things with psychogeography and ghostscapes and all of this, is I think it's really possible to empower oneself and other people to really entirely reconsider the the navigational values that link private psyche to social being to anything like some larger objective world, human-made, natural, whatever. You know, it's really like, and this is a very simple uh, technique, and it's not one of my tools. It's not the tool for this time, but I think it's worth thinking about. We work fundamentally on the arithmetic base, base 10, right? That's how things, mm-hmm. that's what you're up to. Well, we could easily shift that. We could. And either, you know, we could do base 12, you know, we could, we could move that. And there are people who can make that shift. And if you could just train yourself for a few moments to think about how that one standard, that one gauge affects and ripples through culture and through our deep thinking, you can think, oh, I, I can, I could, I could tinker, mm-hmm. you know, just tinker with that a little bit. And if I could do that and hold that in my head, what else can I do? You know? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a great way to open things up. Um, my final note: Have you ever put something somewhere and completely and totally consciously knew when you set say your keys down? You thought to yourself, "I'm definitely gonna forget that. I'm gonna forget where I put these," and then you put them there anyway. Uh- well, look, let me, I, I think 
at the risk of, of, of running on a bit, I, I think this is so interesting. And I have such a clear example to mind that I think I'd like to run it past you so you could interpret it and our listeners can uh, think about it. I I have an obsession with, with cool wristwatches, but mm -hmm. I can't. I only have one that's at all kind of, you know, and I'm not wearing, I I don't really, I just like the, I just like them kind of mentally. I think they're cool too. Yeah. So I have a tag Hoyer watch and there was a point going back uh, to around 2012 when uh, we were filming the movie version, video version of the Humble Assessment, my play, which had premiered and been the, the main feature at the Las Vegas Fringe Festival. And it was at a really crucial moment in my time coming back because I had this big fellowship at Black Mountain Institute. I had a built-in kind of network of writers and artists connected with the Vegas Fringe Festival, theatrically, arts, a whole bunch of things. It was a good time of collaboration. And we were over at my condo then, my rental condo before I bought it there. And we were filming. And I had to move some stuff. And I also, for whatever reason, took off that watch and I put it in the toes of some shoes. And I did have a moment of thinking this is something that could get law. I really did phrase that in my mind, just as you said. And for two years, I, I just, and I moved to another place and I did not know where that watch was. And it concerned me. It was not only, it's not only because it's an expensive watch, but I really felt that was a comment about my sense of time and a sense of, uh, well, adjustment to the world. And I really think that was an indication of entering a, a phase of, of serious depression. And once I've, I allowed myself to think of the watch as the symbol, you know, just as in a dream, I relaxed and I, I, I saw it all. And I saw it back to that day. I saw that moment of, you know, for whatever reason, putting it in the shoe. And I don't know. It, it all came clear. It was there. And I think I had a really good intuition about my own mental health. I think that that is exactly the thread to pick up on next time. Because uh, we have a lot to talk about still in terms of mental health. And... The way that mental health is perceived in 2023, the way that certain aspects of mental health are kind of oddly swept under the rug or are said to not be issues of mental health. Um, so I want to pick that up because I think that is a actually a great tool. The conversion of the incident into a symbol in a dreamlike way. Mm -hmm. as a method of sitting with the trouble i think is really really cool but i want to get into the tools and the tips okay i but i'm in, I, i'm in total agreement with you and i think we should put uh, uh you know a special uh poison dart 
uh, blowgun dart in that for next time. So we we come back to it because I think that is really cool. I'm I'm very grateful we kind of wandered down to the in that cool labyrinth. Okay, uh, this is uh, this sounds as if it's really directed at writers. I think that's cool because Dave and I know a lot of writers. We know people who are you know devoted listeners who are writers. But I think this is a bigger idea. It's not just a writing technique, but I say to uh, all of my students, and I and you and I have talked about this, is get over backstory. You know, reduce mm-hmm. exposition. Exposition is is the enemy all the time. Get into the, you know, and I think there there is a lot of truth to that. Uh, any backstory is too much backstory. I've said it a whole bunch of different ways. But I think following a principle that you and I really uh, support, per, you know, one of our major tools is inversion, you know, flipping it around, then get over the idea and problems of backstory by only having backstory. And I think that there's a lot of interesting things that could happen, both certainly in terms of writing, but for people who don't think of themselves as writers at all, uh, there's a lot going on in that. And I would just tie into this one of my favorite quotations from Lewis Thomas, the beautiful neurologist, doctor, scientist, writer, essayist, linguist, Uh, And his wonderful books, uh, you know, like The Lives of a Cell, he said, the amazing thing about language is that it allows us to not come to the point. Mm -hmm. And I think if everyone got into that when they're about 14 or 15, that's one of the heaviest ideas and, and, and most joyously strange ideas that that the humanities and the language arts can can offer and and i think it's a great start to a lot of interesting adventures uh language the amazing thing about language that allows us to not come to the point wow well what then man what then so that's my tool and here's my tip which i think is really i think it's important i really really do uh, I, I think we do it, um, you know, it may not be the kind of th- on the level of, say, masturbation or I don't know, whatever, <laughs> but it's something that we do, all of us, at some point. And we just, I'm talking now about accepting this practice and actually making it uh, a joyous, magical discipline, however awkward and weird we may feel. And I suggest that because we might feel awkward and weird, that that's all the more reason to embrace it and pursue it. I'm talking about speaking directly to yourself in the mirror each day at some point. You know, we all, you know, we're shaving, we're doing, we're what, you know, we're we're doing, we're checking. Just have a moment of really, really doing that. And any weirdness you might feel with that, any silliness or, 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 you know, some, I don't know, you could, it could be scary. I remember speaking to myself in a mirror once when I was on PCP, which is one of the few drugs that I just have nothing, nothing good to say about. Oh, it's not good. The time I did it was one of the worst times of my life. 
Oh my God. I mean, I just, it was nightmarish and, and ultimately not that issue it was just sort of just terrible, but short of that experience, I think that uh, if you can get past any awkwardness, uh, either just silly or scary or, or I don't know, whatever, that there is something to be learned. There's something to be learned. I, I talk to myself in the mirror every single day. This is a tip that's very relevant to my, my daily activities. Every time I, whether, cool. when I'm, I, I'd I'm never washing my that. hands, okay. yeah, if I'm washing my hands after using the restroom or getting out of the shower, or sometimes if I just pass a mirror, I'll go over there and I'll just say, hey, what's up? What are you doing? And then I'll be a different character and I'll be like, oh, not much, man. I'm just kind of hanging out. I, I do this, Chris. I do this. I do this every single time I pass. I pass, even even if I'm in public, which might freak out the uh, the fellow, you know, uh, bathroom goers in public or whatever. But I still do it because I don't really care. Um, they'll I'll, I'll make a good story for some people. It's like, yeah, there was a guy who was talking to himself in the mirror. He's he playing. He's playing two characters. Uh, so yeah, yeah. It's part you of my daily practice. See, this is how we keep learning and keep, you know, I mean, there's so much more to discover. I love that. I love that. Mm-hmm. Oh, my. Okay. Are you ready for the dream? The dream is yes. really, really, uh, I think it comes very strongly out of the, the art exhibit. It doesn't have anything to do with my work or escapes as an idea, but um and I haven't uh, touched base with the glass bead game. Herman Hess's great book. I know you love that book too. It's mm-hmm. the only reference point I can I can have for it. But it's a it's a game. Imagine sort of typical uh, size dolls, maybe I don't know eight to nine inches high in, but they're in glass cylinders, so not plastic. Something nicer. And the dolls actually change. Like if two people are playing this game, they don't see the same dolls. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. They don't see the same dolls and they don't see the same detail. Okay. Uh, the board itself has a mixture of conventional sort of spaces on it, like circles or typical sort of geometric shapes. Then it also has very odd, organic, very hard to describe shapes. And it's not clear how the players move the pieces. Essentially, you do not know the rules. And you move a piece and you learn, can you get away with it or not? And certain consequences happen to you, which could be, they range, they range Mm -hmm. greatly. But it's a risk and return game, as as maybe everything is in life. So you don't know about the moves you're making. You're free, technically, to make any, to move any of your pieces. You see the same pieces each time. That remains consistent. Your opponent does not see the same pieces, and you don't know if they're seeing the same board or if they're getting the same responses to their choices. Mm. Do know about progress towards the goal and the goal is to somehow not just move 
these doll figures around the board. Oh, no, no, no. You somehow move the doll figures, whatever they look like to you, into different cylinders as if kind of by magic. The way that happens is successful moves on the board give you more powers to do that. Mm. But it also puts you at a greater risk of various kinds of consequences. Let's say consequences, not punishments. So that was the dream. And I, I really, I was so focused on the aesthetics of it and this strange notion of discovery and evolution. Because the other thing is, you know, that along with the map is not the terrain, the rules are not the game, man. You know, it's like, okay. And it's saying like the algorithm is somehow not what the algorithm. I mean, it's like, okay, we, we, we could plug in any number of metaphors for that, but in a way the rules do become the game. And that rather than being rules handed to you, you are creating some of the physics and metaphysics of the game by virtue of your choices. And I, what is the, Oh, no, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. I woke up with that sense of like, God, this is mysterious, but I, I love the aesthetics of it. And I, I liked the idea of something evolving because of, because of the players which is what games, how they must have come about, you know? Yep. Yep. I mean, you find that when I used to invent games when I was in elementary school, I would get all the kids on the playground and I would invent a game. There was one that I did where we had a dodgeball and we were in a basketball court with these, you know, 10 foot high chain link fences around it. And the chain link fences were segmented in thirds by horizontal steel poles and the goal was just to throw the ball, have it bounce once, and land under the the lowest rung. Right? That was the right. that was what the goal is. And I I have this very specific memory of uniting my class around this game, and then having a complete mutiny because I was changing the rules of the game as we played so that I would win. And I would say, no, no, I never said the first one. I meant the the the, the second one, right? right. You know? And they suddenly were were cottoning on to this idea that this motherfucker's making this up as he goes along. <laughs> he, he's just he just wants this isn't a real game. Uh, I am curious though, your dream game. I'm fascinated by it. Do you have an idea of what that game might have been called? Something that, uh, like a comp, yeah, I do, but I don't have a clear, something like Botalia. Something that that reminded me of of bottles, Botanica. And I think that, that the bottle thing referred to these cylinders in which the doll figurines, I think. Is it? Is it okay with you if I take if I use that idea, crediting absolutely. you? Absolutely. Okay, cool. cool. Oh no, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. Because I, I like that a lot, and I I, w- I was looking for something like that for this novel that I'm writing right now. So. Oh look, yeah. that's cool magic. I'm I couldn't be happier to have you use that. Couldn't be happier. Cool, cool, awesome. Well, 
until next time, people. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Stay sensible, sane, and safe, and, and magical.